0: Today we're in Mark chapter 1. We're just flying through it. Actually, the question is, what's the hurry? We're going to be in Mark 1, and today we're going to look at what appear to be three separate vignettes. But when you slow down and look at what's going on, it's quite remarkable. To do that, it's important to remember the context. If you remember two weeks ago, we saw how John was announcing the coming of the king. Talk about the gospel, what it was, verses 1 through 8. Last week in verses 9 through 11, we looked at the coronation of the king. We also looked at an invitation. And today in verses 12 through 20, we're going to see three things about our Lord that are a great encouragement to both our enjoying, excuse me, relational intimacy with Him, as well as our ability to joyfully obey Him. And look at the temptation of Christ we're going to look at the beginning of his public ministry and the call of his first disciples. So I'll read the word of the Lord, and then we will begin to unpack it, beginning in verse 12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, with hired servants, and followed him. Now, you may think Mark had a little ADD. He's talking about Jesus being tempted, Jesus proclaiming the gospel, Jesus going along the Sea of Galilee, and it's like, whoa, slow down! In fact... If you read the other gospel accounts, you realize he's left out a whole bunch of stuff. For example, John 2 and 4. There's a whole lot of stuff that Jesus was doing that Mark hasn't recorded. Well, let me assure you that this isn't a matter of ADD. This is a matter of divine inspiration. And the Holy Spirit knows exactly what he's doing as he had Mark record these words. And what's phenomenally interesting is in the context you see the king is coming. The king is coronated. And here you see exactly who the king is by way of the king's authority. Now look at this. Jesus, in the first one, has power over Satan. In the second one, he has power over sin. And in the third one, he has power over sinners. Let me unpack this for you a little bit as we look at it. Let's start with the first one, the temptation. Verses 12 through 13, "...the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness." Do you know why the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness? I can make something up. It is. He had to show that he had power over Satan to be the Messiah. If Jesus came to defeat Satan, he was going to have to go out into the wilderness and face him. Matthew tells us that the Holy Spirit led him to be tempted by the devil. Now you may have a question. You may say, "Well, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that God doesn't tempt anyone?" That's a great question. Who asked that? Oh, it was me. It does say that in the book of James, James one thirteen, actually. So what you have to understand here is God didn't tempt Jesus. The Holy Spirit didn't tempt Jesus. The. Father sovereignly allowed the Son to be tempted by the evil one. I don't know if you're aware of this or not as believers. Sometimes you face temptation. Did you know that? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. You go on and it says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. We will face temptation. But the temptation isn't from God. It's sovereignly allowed by God. And God's fully in control of it. He'll never give us more than we can handle as we walk in His power. We looked at that in 1 Corinthians. Well, Jesus faced a temptation in the wilderness. Notice the difference between the temptation Christ faced and the temptation Adam faced. Right? In the wilderness versus in paradise. In perfect fellowship with God and Eve, all by himself. Jesus had no one to pray with him. He had no one to encourage him. He had no help, no companionship. And that was important because if this is the king then the king needs to show that he has power over Satan. So off he goes into the wilderness. It says, he was driven out in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and the next two words in your English translation, if you have the ESV, say, being tempted. Sometimes we think that after 40 days, he was really hungry, he was really worn out, and then the devil showed up and tempted him just three times. That's not what happened. Jesus, in fact, was tempted before this. He was tempted throughout these 40 days. That's why it says being tempted, present active. And he was tempted after this. Now, if you're a good Berean Christian, you're going to say, where do you come up with the before and the after part? It's another great question. Who asked that? Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way we are. and Luke 22.28, he speaks to his disciples, and he tells them that they were with him when he faced trials, temptations. So Jesus wasn't just tempted three times, but, but this is a pinnacle. And when you look at the three temptations he faced in the wilderness, you see that the devil's goal, the devil, I don't know if you know this or not, he doesn't look at Jesus and say, I don't believe you are God. Oh, he knows he's God. He doesn't say, I don't believe you're a king. He knows he's king. But what he's saying to Christ in the temptations is, a king shouldn't suffer humiliation. He says, listen, a king shouldn't be hungry. Make yourself some food. A king should rule. Here are some kingdoms. A king should be recognized. Jump off the temple. The angels will catch you. You see, the evil one is tempting Jesus that he should not have to suffer and be humiliated. And do you know why he tempts him that way? It's because if Christ does not suffer and is not humiliated, you and I cannot be saved. That's the devil's greatest ploy. First he tried to prevent Christ from fulfilling his ministry, and now he works to prevent people from believing in what Christ has done. But Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus, Jesus rebukes the devil, he stands on the word of God, he walks in obedience to God, and you see his power over the devil as he faces this temptation. As a side note... It makes reference uniquely here to the fact that he was with the wild animals. Do you know why Mark may have said that? Remember his audience, the initial audience, were believers in Rome. This was during the time of Nero's persecution. And believers in Rome at this time were often killed by being thrown to wild animals for public displays. So imagine, if you will, as you're reading this for the first time, maybe maybe hiding in the catacombs below the city as you're trying to worship God as a church family. We don't know how good we have it, do we? You're hiding to avoid death, and you know people, perhaps your own family, if not your own body of believers, who have been thrown to the wild animals and killed before people because they follow Christ, and Mark, through the Holy Spirit, records that Jesus was with the wild animals... He was with foxes and pumas and snakes and scorpions and lions. Scripture tells us all these are animals in the wilderness. But look what it says. And the angels were ministering to him. You read that and you think, well, if if Christ was persecuted by the devil, if Christ was tempted by the devil, if Christ was was with wild animals in great danger, well, maybe God has us under control too. It says the angels were ministering to him. That means two things, actually. In the most basic way, the word means they fed him. They brought him food. But in another sense, who sends the angels? They're messengers of God. So the Father sends the angels to the Son to say, after the temptation, after the 40 days in the wilderness, wilderness, with you I am still well pleased. You have power over Satan. And now you want to ask the question, well, what does this have to do with us? We'll look at 1 Peter 5, verse 8. confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the devil prowls about still. And he's all about messing up believers. And the bad news is, on your own, you can't deal with that. You have no capacity on your own to resist the devil. You will get chewed up and spat out. But, because Christ has shown his power over the devil because of the power at work within us as believers, as we walk in the Spirit, we too can resist the attacks and the temptations of the evil one. Do you understand that? An interesting side note there, in verse 9 of 1 Peter 8, it says, Resist him. Ephesians 2.10, you know Ephesians 2.8 and 9, even if you don't know it, you know it. You're saved by grace through faith, and not by good works, so that no one can boast, Right? Ephesians 2.10 gives us the why of 8 and 9, and it says to do the good works that God prepared beforehand. Well, you can't do Ephesians 2.10 if you're being chewed up and spat out by the devil. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, through verse 26, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So... God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen. Jesus has authority over the devil. And by his power as his friends, as children of God through Christ, we too need not fear the evil one as we walk in Christ's will. Even if wild animals seek to devour us, we need not be afraid because God is fully in control. 1 John 4.4 4 is a beautiful little passage. It says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So whether you sit in a catacomb or a prison, perhaps, awaiting death, You can hear the word of God himself saying, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You say, how can you do that? Jesus says, well, let me show you first of all. I have power over the prince of this world. I have power over Satan. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at the next thing. The proclamation, verse 14 Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Listen, the gospel isn't that Jesus wants to hang out with you. You know, sometimes you hear such a a wishy-washy watered down. You present it like this. Do you want to not go to hell? Do you want God to love you? Well, no, I'd prefer to go to hell and rot for eternity. Who's going to turn that down? Jesus loves you. Why, why don't, don't, you want, don't you want to love Him and go to heaven and see all your dead relatives? You ever Try that. You'll, you'll see lots of people saved. The good news about God is that the King has come and conquered sin, offered forgiveness, and He'll come back to now make things right. The good news is that you can be right with God, which you couldn't do on your own, and you could only do that because of the kairos pleroma. You say, the what? Kairos pleroma. I'll show you what that means in a moment. Jesus came preaching. Now, why was he preaching? You know, people aren't saved by his miracles. His miracles attest to his message, but the message is what saves people. Remember remember, good old Simon the magician? He's like, let me get some of that magic stuff going. Magic, magic don't heal. Well, it's not magic. Signs and wonders, miracles, they don't save people. That's why when we see Diocles and Lazarus, you know, the, the rich guy, is, he's, he's gone, he's going to hell, and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to tell my brothers. And what does he say to him? Even if a person rises from the dead and speaks to them, they will not believe if they don't believe the prophets. It's not the prophets as the people, it's the message they proclaim. Well, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Kairos pleroma. The time. There are two ways to look at the word time. There's chronos and kairos. The difference? Historic or historical. The word kairos used here speaks of a historic moment in time. A pivotal moment based on which everything else is different afterwards. Pleroma means superfilled. Jesus is saying the historic moment of time is completely and unfathomably taken place. Boom. Repent and believe. Messiah has come. The King has come. And the King has come for what purpose? To show He has power over sin. Now, based on that, well, why do I say power over sin? John one twenty nine. Remember when, when Jesus came to John the Baptist in John's recording? Not John the Baptist recording the disciples, John It says in verse 29 of chapter 1, The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, remember what comes next? Who takes away the sins, the sin of the world. Jesus came and showed us not only does he have power over Satan, he has power over sin. The good news of Christ is that God has power over sin and Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. That's the good news. You can come before God only through Christ because your sin is forgiven through him alone. So you don't ask people, do you want to go to heaven with God? You ask people, do you recognize who the king is? Do you recognize who you are before the king? Do you recognize your need for a savior? If so, if you will repent and believe, you will be saved. That's the good news. The side note is you get to go to heaven. The great news is you're reconciled to God. So then we go here and notice this, repent and believe. Present imperatives, constant actions. If you repent constantly and believe constantly, you'll be saved. Now listen to this carefully, don't misunderstand It is not conditional of salvation that you must repent and believe to be saved. It is if you are truly saved, you will continuously repent and believe. There's a big difference there which you need to understand. Jesus doesn't say, repent constantly and believe constantly, and at the end of your life I'll examine how you did, and I'll determine if you earned salvation. No. He says, if you repent and believe, you are saved at a moment in time. And as evidence of that salvation, you will continue to repent and believe. That doesn't mean you won't sin. It doesn't mean you won't have times where you struggle. But over the long haul, you will persevere. Do you see that? Amen. That is so important. I was reading this week of a, a gentleman who, when he was in his early twenties, was going through a hard time in his life, and he met with he was talking with these two people at a, at a church function, and they shared the gospel with him, and they had him pray this prayer. And they told him since he prayed the prayer, he was saved. Well, over the years, though, he didn't necessarily live a life that a saved person would live. He was convinced because he prayed the prayer he was right with God. And no matter how he lived, it didn't matter because once he prayed, he was told that he was saved. Do you see the danger here? He was never discipled. There was was no one to help Him walk. It is so important as we proclaim the gospel. It doesn't say, go out and share the gospel with people. It says, go out and make disciples. We share the gospel and then we walk alongside the people so that through the power of Christ, they can be nurtured and cared for, and they can be assured of their salvation because they are repenting and believing as a lifestyle. And they can do that because Jesus has power over sin. First to save and then to allow us to walk in uprightness and holiness. You might say, "But wait a minute! If Jesus has power over sin, why is there so much sin around? Why why is the world so riddled with sin? Why, why am I so riddled with sin at times? Why, why? if He if He has power over sin, well, there are three aspects to the kingdom of God. There's the invisible kingdom." The kingdom in the heart of the believers. That's where we live right now, the hidden kingdom. When Jesus returns, he establishes what's called the millennial kingdom. It's a thousand-year reign on earth. At the end of that thousand years, then there's the eternal kingdom. Now, in the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sin. You won't struggle with sin. But during the hidden or invisible kingdom, we still battle sin. Sin. But my friends, we're not captive to sin as Christians. Christ has overcome sin. He's defeated the devil and he's given us the power to walk in obedience. But we daily don the armor of God to stop the fiery darts of the devil. We store up God's word in our hearts so we might not sin against him. But we are not stuck in sin because our Savior has power over sin. Let me bring you to the last part and show you something It might might unsettle you for a moment, but stick with it, because it's such an encouragement. The calling, in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee. It's actually technically a giant lake. 700 feet below sea level. It is harp-shaped. And it is loaded with various types of fish that exist nowhere else in the area. It is a center of international fishing and commerce. It was at this time, too. And people would ship and travel through there to receive fish galore. So when I read to you what happens, I want you to understand that these guys aren't in some rusted out boat like you would see on the news coming from Cuba to Florida, you know? And they're not so dead like anything that comes along, we're going. These are successful fishermen in a successful fishing area. You ready now? Jesus... Walking alongside the Sea of Galilee saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now we know through John's gospel that Jesus met them several months before. And when Jesus met them before, if you were here when we were doing the Gospel of John series, there was that freaky moment where they were stalking Jesus. If you don't remember that, you can go back and try to listen to it. Jesus came to John to be baptized. He left. These two guys are following him. Hey, Rabbi, where are you going? Jesus says, y'all are freaking me out. Get away from here. He didn't say that. He said, "Come, come with me. They spent some time with him. And they came to believe in him as Messiah at that time. Well, then they went back home and got to fishing. Well, Jesus shows up again after a few months and he says to them, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. Rabbis didn't command students to follow them. Students asked rabbis to follow them. They would often go through an interview-type process, a la like going to college. But Jesus says to these guys, You, follow me. He didn't ask. He didn't say, If you'd be interested in following me, you may come along. It just says, Follow me. Then I'll make you become fishers of men. And then it says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Well, what happened there? Now remember, they're not down-and-out fishermen starving on the shores of Galilee. You know, it's not, it's not like we have um, Andrew saying to Simon, Oh, man, I'm so hungry. we got to find something to do. Oh, our house is falling over. What are we going to do when Jesus comes by? Oh, there's hope. Now, these guys are probably making good money, living a good life, running running a good business. Jesus says, you, you, follow me. And then he just drop everything and go. Unless you think I'm making something up here, look what happens next. Goes on a little further, and he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in a boat mending their nets... Immediately he called them, and they left, their, they left their father Zebedee in the boat. I mean, they're like, see you, Dad. Now, they weren't being cruel, because if you notice, in the boat with Zebedee were some hired servants, and they followed Jesus. Now, hold on there a minute while we just drop something. This was a successful fishing business of a family, because you don't have hired servants if you're, like, dirt poor. You know that. They have hired servants in the boat with Dad. Now, if you look at John 18, you know this John... Do you remember how he got in when Jesus was going through his trials and persecution? Because he was known to the high priest. Now, I'm just playing around here, but could it possibly be that John's family had a big successful fishing business? They even traded with the temple courts, and he was known to the high priest through the successful family business? Could that be possible? I think it could, and I'll show you why in a minute with Levi. But Jesus says, hey, you and you, let's go. And they drop their stuff, see you, Dad, and off they go. Now, timeout. Why would they do that? Isn't there risk associated with that? Look at uh, Mark 4. You know Levi, the tax man? Tax dudes made good money. I guess they still do. But back then, it was even worse. They'd determine how much people would pay, and they'd pocket the change. And Jesus walks up to this, this tax man in 4.14... And he says to him, if I could find verse 14 in my Bible right after 13, like usual. It says that he calls him and Levi, what does Levi do? He starts crying. I can't go with you. I can't follow you. I've given you the wrong verse. I'll get it in a minute when my head quiets. Levi gets up and follows him. Why would he do that? Now, this is what I want you to see. This is not the wrong verse. John 15, 16. Turn over there for a minute. This is a verse that a lot of people just kind of skip over because you don't quite know what to do with it. John 15, 16. Jesus says something that's a little little bit shocking, but amazingly wonderful. And if you don't understand what this verse is saying, you're going to have a heck of a time sharing the gospel with people. Look at this. He says, You did not choose me... But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, you know what he's saying there? The whole concept of asking Jesus into your heart or accepting Jesus? You bow down to Jesus. And the reason you bow down to Jesus is because he said to you, follow me. He said to these fishermen, follow me. Now listen closer to my words here. These guys voluntarily followed Jesus because he called them. And they voluntarily followed him because Jesus, who has power over Satan, Jesus, who has power over sins, hear this one now, Jesus also has power over sinners or people. Jesus called these guys, he said, follow me, so they followed him. They made a real choice. They were accountable to God for the choice they made. But Jesus says in John 15, 16, I chose you. Now understand what that means. Well, before we get into the depths of that, let me point out this side comment. He calls them and he says, I will make you fishers of men. Is that what he said? Look closely before you nod your head. doesn't say, I will make you fishers of men. There's another word in there. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. These guys were fishermen. In fact, the whole concept of fishing for men is actually not, it's not an illustration Jesus just came up with there. He came up with it back when he spoke to the prophet Isaiah through the Holy Spirit. But the fishing back then was a fishing where people would be brought into judgment. This is a fishing to bring people into salvation. But he says, I will make you become fishers of men. So many believers today get discouraged when they try to share their faith and they see no fruit. They're like, well, nobody's listening. It's not working. Well, it doesn't say if you're saved, you're going to be immediately a fisher of men. You're going to become. How do you become a fisher of men? You walk in greater and greater understanding that Jesus has power over Satan, Jesus has power over sin, Jesus has power over sinners, and as you go out into the world living in the power of Christ, for the glory of Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, you see that it is Christ who saves people, not us. We walk in obedience, we speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, and if Christ so chooses to save, he will save. That takes an immense burden off of you. Your job is to love and proclaim. The Holy Spirit has a job of convicting the world of righteousness and judgment of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have an aspect where we're called to persuade and compel. Read Acts. Paul does that. But it's the power of God to save sinners, because He has power over sinners that makes our evangelism effective. If there's no one left to be saved, Jesus would have come back. Do you understand that? So though you might not see people saved, the fact that Jesus hasn't come back tells you that you have lost brothers and sisters that need to hear the gospel so they can be called back into the sheepfold. And that is the business our daddy has us about. And he tells us to call the sheep because he has power over sheep. Do you see that? It's amazing. Now, what's the significance of that last part? The fact that Jesus chose you called you, should, should blow your mind because it makes you so incredibly significant and special that God said, you, 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 follow me. He doesn't say follow me to, to, to pick up my junk. and cl-. No. He says follow me because I love you and I want to live in a relationship with you forever and I want to give your life meaning and purpose and that meaning and purpose is so you can bring glory to me. And I can bring glory to you. John 17. Do you see that? If it was you chose Jesus, then you could be like, well, he stuck with me because I got in on a technicality. You're not in on a technicality. You're in because a sovereign God chose you. And then he calls you to go and proclaim so you could see who else he has chosen. It doesn't mean there's not a responsibility on people to make a decision. They will not be, they'll be judged by that. But Jesus chose you, and you can proclaim the gospel knowing that God has power over sinners. There is nothing in this world that is out of control. Whether lost lost family members or sick people or or seemingly out of control conditions, nothing is out of control. When Jesus went into the wilderness, he didn't freak out. We all would have freaked out. I'd freak out after three hours without snack. He went 40 days. He was with the wild animals. He's constantly being tempted by the devil. He didn't freak out. You know why? The Father had it all perfectly in control, and Christ was king, had power over Satan. And when we go out into the world, God says, paraphrasing, would you all stop freaking out and getting anxious all the time? We say, Father, how can we? He says, read Mark 1. Jesus has power over Satan, power over sin, and power over sinners. What are you all scared about? Do you see that? That this, This God we serve is not only powerful beyond measure, He loves us beyond measure as well. And He offers that love to anyone who will repent and believe. We are in this world now in large part so that we can make Christ known and people might be saved. And the Christ we make known is... The king who has come, who has power over Satan, power over sin, and power over sinners. And if you repent and believe, you may call him friend. That's good news. So what do I want you to, to take from this? You go through this week, remember these three things. Jesus has power over Satan. Satan's desire is to sift you, to chew you up, to spit you out, to stomp you down and make you completely ineffective. He will work. Listen, he tried to hit Jesus on selfishness. You don't deserve that. Listen, where we called to be selfish, no, we're called to be selfless. The devil will try to get you, you know? He may say, "Renee, that pastor is some long-winded fool. You should just stay home next... Mm." And those people behind you, they're probably giving you the stink eye right now. No, she can resist because Jesus has power over the devil. Sin, we struggle with sin, do we not? But we have the ability to overcome sin as we come before God and we pray for him to lead us from sin. And we pray to God to empower us to not sin because Jesus has power over sin. It's not hopeless, my friends, when we struggle with sin. And as far as the sinners, we don't have power over them. Jesus does. And he loves them and calls us to love them too. But when you see them, when you look at them, this is one thing I hate about, about election season. You start to look at the morally deficient and the morally upright. I am so much better than you, because I I am morally far more wholesome, and you're just a dirty, rotten, and I think the Pharisees said that, and Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. The only reason we can call God Father is because Jesus has power over sin and sinners and he said to us, you follow me. And we chose to follow him because he compelled us to by his power and we have the joys we walk in obedience to him. So as we proclaim the gospel, you don't have to finesse it. You don't have to tweak it. You don't have to throw out the moon bounces and the face paint. And, listen, if I said to everyone in Malvern, I'll give you $5,000 if you accept Christ. Perhaps a lot of people come to faith, huh? God offers us something far better than that. He offers us eternal life. But the world, they know the ways of the devil. They know the ways of the flesh. And the money speaks to them right now. But to those God opens the eyes of and calls, they have riches beyond measure for eternity. Our job is to proclaim the same thing Christ did. The gospel of God. Our job is to walk as people who actually believe the gospel of God. Power over Satan. We can resist him because we have the power of Christ at work within us. Jesus has power over sin. We're not captive to sin because we have the power of Christ at work within us. And Jesus has power over sinners. Listen, our evangelism will be effective because Jesus has power over sinners. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for such a clear word from you as you reveal to us who you are, who your son is, and what it means. Lord, too often we put Jesus in a box. Too often we think he is not quite that strong, not quite that wise, not quite that faithful. And if we just mix in a little of our wisdom with your will, then we'll be said, oh, Father, forgive us. Lord, help us to understand that it is every word of yours that proves true, that your ways are always just and upright. Lord, I pray that we this week would understand the immensity of the power of Christ at work within us. I pray we would not be distracted or deceived. I pray we would keep our eyes upon you, knowing that your eyes are upon us. I thank you for the fact that our salvation rests not in our ability or our strength or our faith, but in your faithfulness. Lord, please help us to be the people that you call us to be. Please help us to be an eternally thankful people because of the grace, love, and mercy you have shown us. Help us to be a people who can love because we were first loved, who can extend grace because we were first shown grace, who make much of you because in increasing measure, we see how much you have made of us. Lord Jesus, our powerful Savior, the one who has power over Satan and sin and sinners. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us. We pray that you will use us to call many to yourself. And we pray that our lives will be lived for your glory alone. And all the people of God, pray this in Jesus' name, and we say together, Amen.